Section 26 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 26. The Saracen Conquest of Syria, A.D. 636, by Simon Ockley, Part 3. In the meantime, while Yukino was going out with his forces to engage the Saracens, the wealthy and trading people of Aleppo, knowing very well how hard it would go with them if they should stand it out obstinately to the last and be taken by storm, resolved upon debate to go and make terms with Abu Obeda, that, let Yukina's success be what it would, they might be secure. As they were going back, they chanced to meet with one of Yukina's officers, to whom they gave an account of the whole transaction. Upon this, he hastened with all possible speed to his master, who was waiting with impatience for the morning, that he might dispatch Cobb and his men, whom the coming of the night had preserved. But hearing this news, he began to fear lest an attempt should be made upon the castle in his absence, and thought it safest to make the best of his way homeward. In the morning the Saracens were surprised to see no enemy, and wondered what was the matter with them. Cobb would have pursued them, but none of his men had any inclination to go with him, so they rested themselves, and in a little time Khalid and Abu Obeda came up with the rest of the army. Abu Obeda reminded Khalid of the obligation they were under to protect the Aleppians, now their confederates, who were likely to be exposed to the outrage and cruelty of Yukina, for, in all probability, he would severely resent their defection. They therefore marched as fast as they could, and when they drew near Aleppo found that they had not been at all wrong in their apprehensions. Yukina had drawn up his soldiers with the design to fall upon the townsmen, and threatened them with present death unless they would break their covenant with the Arabs and go out with him to fight them, and unless they brought out to him the first contriver and proposer of the convention. At last he fell upon them in good earnest and killed about three hundred of them. His brother John, who was in the castle, hearing a piteous outcry and lamentation, came down from the castle and entreated his brother to spare the people, representing to him that Jesus Christ had commanded us not to contend with our enemies, much less with those of our own religion. Yukina told him that they had agreed with the Arabs and assisted them, which John excused, telling him, that what they did was only for their own security, because they were no fighting men. In short, he took their part so long till he provoked his brother to that degree that he charged him with being the chief contriver and manager of the whole business, and at last, in a great passion, cut his head off. While he was murdering the unhappy Aleppians, Khalid, better late than never, came to their relief. Yukina, perceiving his arrival, retired with a considerable number of soldiers into the castle. The Saracens killed that day three thousand of his men. However, he prepared himself to sustain a siege and planted engines upon the castle walls. Abu Obeda next deliberated in a council of war what measures were most proper to be taken. Some were of opinion that the best way would be to besiege the castle with some part of the army and let the rest be sent out to forage. Khalid would not hear of it, but was for attacking the castle at once with their whole force that, if possible, it might be taken before fresh supplies could arrive from the emperor. This plan being adopted, they made a vigorous assault, in which they had as hard fighting as any in all the wars of Syria. 
The besieged made a noble defense, and threw stones from the walls in such plenty that a great many of the Saracens were killed, and a great many more maimed. Eukina, encouraged with his success, determined to act on the offensive and turn everything to advantage. The Saracens looked upon all the country as their own, and knowing that there was no army of the enemy near them, and fearing nothing less than an attack from the besieged, kept guard negligently. In the dead of night, therefore, Eukina sent out a party who, as soon as the fires were out in the camp, fell upon the Saracens, and having killed about sixty, carried off fifty prisoners. Khalid pursued and cut off about a hundred of them, but the rest escaped to the castle with the prisoners, who by the command of Eukina were the next day beheaded in the sight of the Saracen army. Upon this, Eukina ventured once more to send out another party, having received information from one of his spies, most of which were Christian Arabs, that some of the Muslims were gone out to forage. They fell upon the Muslims, killed a hundred and thirty of them, and seized all their camels, mules, and horses, which they either killed or hamstrung, and then they retired into the mountains, in hopes of lying hid during the day and returning to the castle in the silence of the night. In the meantime, some that had escaped brought the news to Abu Obeda, who sent Khalid and Darar to pursue the Christians. Coming to the place of the fight, they found their men and camels dead, and the country people making great lamentation, for they were afraid lest the Saracens should suspect them of treachery, and revenge upon them their loss. Falling down before Khalid, they told him they were altogether innocent, and had not in any way, either directly or indirectly, been instrumental in the attack, but that it was made solely by a party of horse that sallied from the castle. Khalid, having made them swear that they knew nothing more, and taking some of them for guides, closely watched the only passage by which the sallying party could return to the castle. When about a fourth part of the night was passed, they perceived Yukina's men approaching, and, falling upon them, took three hundred prisoners and killed the rest. The prisoners begged to be allowed to ransom themselves, but they were all beheaded the next morning in front of the castle. The Saracens pressed the siege for a while very closely, but perceiving that they made no way, Abu Obeda removed the camp about a mile's distance from the castle, hoping by this means to tempt the besieged to security and negligence in their watch, which might eventually afford him an opportunity of taking the castle by surprise. But all would not do, for Yukina kept a very strict watch and suffered not a man to stir out. The siege continued four months, and some say five. In the meantime, Omar was very much concerned, having heard nothing from the camp in Syria, he wrote, therefore, to Abu Ubaidah, letting him know how tender he was over the Muslims, and what a great grief it was to him to hear no news of them for so long a time. Abu Ubaidah answered that Kinizrin, Hader, and Aleppo were surrendered to him, only the castle of Aleppo held out, and that they had lost a considerable number of men before it, that he had some thoughts of raising the siege and passing forward into that part of the country which lies between Aleppo and Antioch, but only he stayed for his answer. About the time that Abu Obeda's messengers reached Medina, there also arrived a considerable number of men out of the several tribes of the Arabs to proffer their service to the caliph. Omar ordered seventy camels to help their foot and dispatched them into Syria with a letter to Abu Obeda, in which he acquainted him that he was variously affected according to the different success they had met, but charged them by no means to raise the siege of the castle, for that would make them look little, and encourage their enemies to fall upon them on all sides. Wherefore, adds he, continue besieging it till God shall determine the event, and forge with your horse round about the country. Among those fresh supplies which Omar had just sent to the Saracen camp, 
there is a very remarkable man whose name was Damas, of a gigantic size and an admirable soldier. When he had been in the camp forty-seven days, and all the force and cunning of the Saracens availed nothing toward taking the castle, he desired Abu Obeda to let him have the command of thirty men, and he would try his best against it. Khalid had heard much of the man, and told Abu Obeda a long story of a wonderful performance of this Damas in Arabia, and that he looked upon him as a very proper person for such an undertaking. Abu Obeda selected thirty men to go with him, and bade them not to despise their commander because of the meanness of his condition, he being a slave, and swore that, but for the care of the whole army which lay upon him, he would be the first man that should go under him upon such an enterprise. To which they answered with entire submission and profound respect. Damas, who lay hid at no great distance, went out several times, and brought in with him five or six Greeks, but never a man of them understood one word of Arabic, which made him angry, and say, God curse these dogs, what a strange barbarous language they use. At last he went out again, and seeing a man descend from the wall, he took him prisoner, and by the help of a Christian Arab, whom he captured shortly afterward, examined him. He learned from him that immediately upon the departure of the Saracens, Yukina began to ill-use the townsmen who had made the convention with the Arabs, and to exact large sums of money of them, that he being one of them, had endeavored to make his escape from the oppression and tyranny of Yukina by leaping down from the wall. Upon this the Saracens let him go, as being under their protection by virtue of the articles made between Abu Obeda and the Aleppians, but beheaded all the rest. In the evening, after having sent two of his men to Abu Obeda, requesting him to order a body of horse to move forward to his support about sunrise, Damas has recourse to the following stratagem. Taking out of a knapsack a goat's skin, he covered with it his back and shoulders, and holding a dry crust in his hand, he crept on all fours as near to the castle as he could. When he heard a noise, or suspected anyone to be near, to prevent his being discovered, he began to make a noise with his crust, as a dog does when gnawing a bone. The rest of his company came after him, sometimes skulking and creeping along, at other times walking. When they came near to the castle, it appeared almost inaccessible. However, Damas was resolved to make an attempt upon it. Having found a place where the walls seemed easier to scale than elsewhere, he sat down upon the ground and ordered another to sit upon his shoulders, and so on till seven of them had mounted up, each sitting upon the other's shoulders and all leaning against the wall, so as to throw as much of their weight as possible upon it. Then he that was uppermost of all stood upright upon the shoulders of the second, next the second raised himself, and so on, all in order, till at last Damas himself stood up, bearing the weight of all the rest upon his shoulders, who, however, did all they could to relieve him by bearing against the wall. By this means the uppermost man could just make a shift to reach the top of the wall, while in an undertone they all cried, O Apostle of God, help us and deliver us. When this man had got up on the wall, he found a watchman drunk and asleep. Seizing him hand and foot, he threw him down among the Saracens, who immediately cut him to pieces. Two other sentinels, whom he found in the same condition, he stabbed with his dagger and threw down from the wall. He then let down his turban and drew up the second, they two the third, till at last Damas was drawn up who enjoined them to wait there in silence while he went and looked about him. In this expedition he gained a sight of Yukina, richly dressed, sitting upon a tapestry of scarlet silk flowered with gold, and a large company with him, eating and drinking, and very merry. 
On his return, he told his men that because of the great inequality of their numbers, he did not think it advisable to fall upon them then, but had rather wait till break of day, at which time they might look for help from the main body. In the meantime, he went alone, and privately stabbing the sentinels, and setting open the gates, came back to his men, and bade them hasten to take possession of the gates. This was not done so quietly, but they were at last taken notice of in the castle alarmed. There was no hope of escape for them, but everyone expected to perish. Damas behaved himself bravely, but, overpowered by superior numbers, he and his men were no longer able to hold up, when, as the morning began to dawn, Khalid came to their relief. As soon as the besieged perceived the Saracens rushing in upon them, they threw down their arms and cried, Quarter! Abu Obeidah was not far behind with the rest of the army. Having taken the castle, he proposed Mohammedanism to the Christians. The first that embraced it was Yukina, and his example was followed by some of the chief men with him, who immediately had their wives and children and all their wealth restored to them. Abu Obeidah set the old and impotent people at liberty, and having set apart the fifth of the spoil, which was of great value, divided the rest among the Muslims. Damas was talked of and admired by all, and Abu Obeidah, in order to pay him marked respect, commanded the army to continue in their present quarters till he and his men should be perfectly cured of their wounds. Obeda's next thoughts, after the capture of the castle of Aleppo, were to march to Antioch, then the seat of the Grecian emperor. But Eukina, the late governor of the castle of Aleppo, having, with the changing of his religion, become a deadly enemy of the Christians, persuaded him to defer his march to Antioch, till they had first taken the castle of Azaz. The armies before Antioch were drawn out in battle array in front of each other. The Christian general, whose name was Nestorius, went forward and challenged any Saracen to single combat. Damas was the first to answer him, but in the engagement, his horse stumbling, he was seized before he could recover himself, and, being taken prisoner, was conveyed by Nestorius to his tent and there bound. Nestorius, returning to the army and offering himself a second time, was answered by one Dahak. The combatants behaved themselves bravely, and, the victory being doubtful, the soldiers were desirous of being spectators, and pressed eagerly forward. In the jostling and thronging both of horse and foot to see this engagement, the tent of Nestorius, with his chair of state, was thrown down. Three servants had been left in the tent, who, fearing they should be beaten when their master came back, and having nobody else to help them, told Damas that if he would lend them a hand to set up the tent and put things in order, they would unbind him, upon condition that he should voluntarily return to his bonds again till their master came home, at which time they promised to speak a good word for him. He readily accepted the terms, but as soon as he was at liberty, he immediately seized two of them, one in his right hand, the other in his left, and dashed their two heads so violently against the third man's that they all three fell down dead upon the spot. Then, opening a chest and taking out a rich suit of clothes, he mounted a good horse of Nestorius's, and having wrapped up his face as well as he could, he made toward the Christian Arabs, where Jabala, with the chief of his tribe, stood on the left hand of Heraclius. In the meantime, Dahak and Nestorius, being equally matched, continued fighting till both their horses were quite tired out, and they were obliged to part by consent to rest themselves. Nestorius, returning to his tent, and finding things in such confusion, easily guessed that Damas must be the cause of it. The news flew instantly through all the army, and everyone was surprised at the strangeness of the action. 
Damas, in the meantime, had gotten among the Christian Arabs, and striking off at one blow the man's head that stood next him, made a speedy escape to the Saracens. Antioch was not lost without a set battle, but through the treachery of Eukina and several other persons of note, together with the assistance of Darar and his company, who were mixed with Eukina's men, the Christians were beaten entirely. The people of the town, perceiving the battle lost, made agreement and surrendered, paying down 300,000 ducats, upon which Abu Obeda entered into Antioch on Tuesday, being the 21st day of August, A.D. 638. Thus did that ancient and famous city, the seat of so many kings and princes, fall into the hands of the infidels. The beauty of the site and abundance of all things contributing to delight and luxury were so great that Abu Obeda, fearing his Saracens should be effeminated with the delicacies of that place, and remit their wanted vigor and bravery, durst not let them continue there long. After a short halt of three days to refresh his men, he again marched out of it. Then he wrote a letter to the caliph, in which he gave him an account of his great success in taking the metropolis of Syria, and of the flight of Heraclius to Constantinople, telling him withal what was the reason why he stayed no longer there, adding that the Saracens were desirous of marrying the Grecian women, which he had forbidden. He was afraid, he said, lest the love of the things of this world should take possession of their hearts and draw them off from their obedience to God. Constantine, the emperor Heraclius's son, guarded that part of the country where Amru lay, with a considerable army. The weather was very cold, and the Christians were quite disheartened, having been frequently beaten and discouraged with the daily increasing power of the Saracens, so that a great many grew weary of the service and withdrew from the army. Constantine, having no hopes of victory and fearing lest the Saracens should seize Caesarea, took the opportunity of a tempestuous night to move off, and left his camp to the Saracens. Amru, acquainting Abu Obeda with all that had happened, received express orders to march directly to Caesarea, where he promised to join him speedily, in order to go against Tripoli, Acre, and Tyre. A short time after this, Tripoli was surprised by the treachery of Eukina, who succeeded in getting possession of it on a sudden, and without any noise. Within a few days of its capture, there arrived in the harbor about fifty ships from Cyprus and Crete, with provisions and arms which were to go to Constantine. The officers, not knowing that Tripoli was fallen into the hands of new masters, made no scruple of landing there, where they were courteously received by Eukina, who proffered the utmost of his service, and promised to go along with them, but immediately seized both them and their ships, and delivered the town into the hands of Khalid, who was just come. With these ships, the trader Eukina sailed to Tyre, where he told the inhabitants that he had brought arms and provisions for Constantine's army, upon which he was kindly received, and, landing, he was liberally entertained with nine hundred of his men. But being betrayed by one of his own soldiers, he and his crew were seized and bound, receiving all the while such treatment from the soldiers as their villainous practices well deserved. In the meantime, Yazid ibn Abu Sofian, being detached by Abu Obeda from the camp before Caesarea, came within sight of Tyre. The governor upon this caused Eukina and his men to be conveyed to the castle, and there secured, and prepared for the defense of the town. Perceiving that Yazid had with him but two thousand men in all, he resolved to make a sally. In the meantime, the rest of the inhabitants ran up to the walls to see the engagement. While they were fighting, Eukina and his men were set at liberty by one Basil, of whom they give the following account, viz., 
that this basil going one day to pay a visit to Bahira the monk, the caravan of the Koreashites came by, with which were Khadijah's camels, under the care of Mohammed. As he looked toward the caravan, he beheld Mohammed in the middle of it, and above him there was a cloud to keep him from the sun. Then the caravan having halted, as Mohammed leaned against an old withered tree, it immediately brought forth leaves. Bahira, perceiving this, made an entertainment for the caravan, and invited them into the monastery. They all went, leaving Mohammed behind with the camels. Bahira, missing him, asked if they were all present. Yes, they said, all but a little boy we have left to look after their things and feed the camels. What is his name? says Bahira. They told him, Muhammad ibn Abdallah. Bahira asked if his father and mother were not both dead, and if he was not brought up by his grandfather and his uncle. Being informed that it was so, he said, O Kareish, set a high value upon him, for he is your lord, and by him will your power be great, both in this world and that to come, for he is your ornament and glory. When they asked him how he knew that, Bahira answered, Because as you were coming, there was never a tree nor stone nor clod, but bowed itself and worshipped God. Moreover, Bahira told this basil that a great many prophets had leaned against this tree and sat under it since it was first withered, but that it never bore any leaves before. And I heard him say, says this same basil, This is the prophet concerning whom Isa, Jesus, spake. Happy is he that believes in him and follows him and gives credit to his mission. This basil, after the visit to Bahira, had gone to Constantinople and other parts of the Greek emperor's territories, and upon information of the great success of the followers of this prophet, was abundantly convinced of the truth of his mission. This inclined him, having so fair an opportunity offered, to release Eukina and his men, who, sending word to the ships, the rest of their forces landed and joined them. In the meantime, a messenger in disguise was sent to acquaint Yazid with what was done. As soon as he returned, Eukina was for falling upon the townsmen upon the wall, but Basil said, Perhaps God might lead some of them into the right way, and persuaded him to place the men so as to prevent their coming down from the wall. This done, they cried out, La ilaha, etc. The people, perceiving themselves betrayed and the prisoners at liberty, were in the utmost confusion, none of them being able to stir a step or lift up a hand. The Saracens in the camp, hearing the noise in the city, knew what it meant, and, marching up, Eukina opened the gates and let them in. Those that were in the city fled, some one way and some another, and were pursued by the Saracens and put to the sword. Those upon the wall cried, Quarter! But Yazid told them that since they had not surrendered, but the city was taken by force, they were all slaves. However, said he, we of our own accord set you free, upon condition you pay tribute, and if any of you has a mind to change his religion, he shall fare as well as we do. The greatest part of them turned Mohammedans. When Constantine heard of the loss of Tripoli and Tyre, his heart failed him, and taking shipping with his family and the greater part of his wealth, he departed for Constantinople. All this while Amru ben el As lay before Caesarea. In the morning, when the people came to inquire after Constantine, and could hear no tidings of him nor his family, they consulted together, and with one consent surrendered the city to Amru, paying down for their security two thousand pieces of silver, and delivering into his hands all that Constantine had been obliged to leave behind him of his property. Thus was Caesarea lost in the year of our Lord 638, being the seventeenth year of the Hegira and the fifth of Omar's reign, which answers to the twenty-ninth year of the emperor Heraclius. 
After the taking of Caesarea, all the other places in Syria, which is yet held out, namely Ramla, Acre, Joppa, Ascalon, Gaza, Sichem, or Nablos, and Tiberias, surrendered. And in a little time after, the people of Bairo Zidon, Jabala, and Laodicea followed their example, so that there remained nothing more for the Saracens to do in Syria, who, in little more than six years from the time of their first expedition in Abu Bekr's reign, had succeeded in subduing the whole of that large, wealthy, and populous country. Syria did not remain long in the possession of those persons who had the chief hand in subduing it, for in the eighteenth year of the Hegira, the mortality in Syria, both among men and beasts, was so terrible, particularly at Emmaus and the adjacent territory, that the Arabs called that year the year of destruction. By that pestilence, the Saracens lost five and twenty thousand men, among whom were Abu Obeidah, who was then fifty-eight years old, Sir Jabal ibn Hazana, formerly Muhammad's secretary, and Yazid ibn Abu Sofian, with several other officers of note. Khalid survived them about three years, and then died. But the place of his burial, consequently of his death, for they did not use in those days to carry them far, is uncertain. Some say at Hems, others at Medina. End of section 26